Oh, blessed one. God does this day. The exercise of soul by which we could ascribe unto thee glory and honor, realizing that thou and the only art God having in thyself all perfection. Thou who art the Father of glory, grant that our soul may glorify thee. Be pleased to draw near to us, putting us and keeping us in a frame of mind suited to the exercise in which we profess to be engaged. We profess to be gathered together in order to worship God, the great God, the one living and true God, the creator of the ends of the earth, the sustainer of all that he has created. And we would bless thee that this does not exhaust what thou art and what thou hast made thyself known to be. For thou art also a great redeemer, a savior of the lost. And we pray that there may be evidence in our soul this day to this great and glorious fact that thou art a redeemer, the only redeemer, a powerful redeemer, one for whom nothing is too hard, for thou art able to save to the uttermost, all who come unto thee by Christ Jesus. Grant us, we pray thee, the enlightenment, the instruction of thy Spirit, giving us the knowledge of thy glory in the face of Jesus Christ. For to the Spirit it belongs to glorify Christ, to receive of the things that are his, and show them unto 
such as we are. May the Spirit then, in his powerful, his uh, omnipotent ministry, be present with us, renewing us in the spirit of our mind, giving us to behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. May we as a people be thus engaged looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of the faith of his people. God manifest in the flesh May we indeed look unto him. May we be enabled and persuaded to do so through the Holy Ghost. Lord, we are not worthy that thou shouldest deal thus with us. For that which makes it imperative for us to look to Jesus is that which makes us utterly unworthy of the least good or assistance from the hand of God. It is our sin that has brought us to the condition from which we cannot be saved but by Jesus only. And yet it is our sin that leaves us utterly unworthy and undeserving of the least good at the hand of God. Oh, glorious and gracious one, give us to understand something of thy character as that is made known in the sure word of the gospel that we may be able to look above and beyond ourselves and to see in thee all that we need and all that we can decide. Bless us, each one we beseech of thee. Bless us as a people. Bless all whom we should commit to thy gracious care and and we would remember especially those who may be anxious for loved ones, those who are bereft of loved ones. Lord, be with them, comforting and strengthening them in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And give us all to understand that our life is uncertain, that we know not what day or hour we may be called hence. 
and give us to apply our heart unto wisdom in view of this. Grant that thou wouldst bless thy word to us, and that thou wouldst bless it wherever it is proclaimed this day. Do thou accompany it by thy power, and crown it by thy blessing, that there may be fruit unto the glory of thy blessedness. Be with us now as we would further wait upon and take away all of the iniquities, accepting of us in Christ, in whom thou shalt have the praise. Amen. We shall read God's word, as you will find it in the epistle of Paul to the Romans. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. <laughs> what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. But like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. Words you will find in the first epistle of Peter. First epistle of Peter and the second chapter. And we may read from verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bear our sins, in his own body on the tree, 
that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your soul. Especially the last part of the 24th verse. That we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness. And this, uh, as we have already indicated, <clears throat> is the uh, peculiar aspect of the blessing of believers which re they receive from Christ. This, we say, is the peculiar blessing which the apostle here emphasizes, namely, that believers being dead to sin should live unto righteousness. Now the first thing that is predicated of um, believers here is that they are dead to sin. They are dead to sin. And that follows from the previous statement of the apostles, namely, that Christ bears their sins in his own body to the tree. Now they are dead to sin because of this. This is how they are dead to sin. And notice that what is meant here is not that they ought to be dead to sins. What is actually written is that they, having died to sins, should live unto righteousness. It is a fact that is pointed out. A fact that they died to sin. They are dead to sin. That, of course, does not mean that there is no sin in them, no. But we are not to argue. Because there is sin in them, that therefore they are not dead to sin. Argument, if we did employ it, would be altogether wrong. They are dead to sin. Now, of course, the question emerges <clears throat> with considerable force. How is this so? How are we to understand 
that they are dead to sin. And dead to sin because Christ bore their sins in his own body on the tree. The fact of their being dead is as certain and as unchangeable as the fact that Christ bore their sins. The same tense is used. <clears throat> now, we have to acknowledge shortcomings in this particular aspect of Christian doctrine. Maybe at this point is not stressed as it ought to be. The fact that the believer is dead to sin. Now in that chapter of Romans which we read this morning, this is the point that is argued aptly by the Apostle Paul. How shall we that are dead to sins live any longer therein? It is possible, at least in a measure, for one who is dead to sin, it is possible for him to sin, and up to a point to live in sin. <clears throat> Not, of course, as the unbeliever. Nevertheless, the one has nothing to do with the other. Now, this uh, brings us back to the relation of man to sin, and therefore the relation of man to the law. Everywhere in Scripture, man in a natural state is um, looked upon as man under the law. under sin, under the dominion of sin. Hence, a child of wrath, by name, all are children of wrath. By name, that's important, of course. We were all, by nature, the children of wrath, even as us. That meant that they were alive to sin instead of being dead. This is the great change of which Peter here speaks and of which Paul argues at length, especially in the epistles to the Romans, the Galatians, and the Ephesians. This is the great the basic, the fundamental, the unchanging change that takes place in the life of a man 
when he is passed from death to life, from the power of sin to God. He dies to sin. He dies to sin because he dies to the law. Sin has no more dominion over him because he is not under the law. If he were under the law, then sin would have dominion over him. But because he is not under the law, then sin has no dominion over him. Again, we repeat, that doesn't mean that he has no sin, nor does it mean that he does not sin. For if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Very well. There's the tension there. Well, it all depends the way we look at it. And if we look at it in the scriptural way, <clears throat> if we are, uh, if we are um, willing to be guided by the scriptures, then we shall see how this matter is uh, explained and elucidated. Not being be dead to sin and yet having sin. You remember, <clears throat> again in the epistle of the Romans, we have these words, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness unto them who believe. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Now it is precisely there that we are to try at least to discover this uh, change of standing which is the privilege of all who are the Lord's. That is all who have been born again, regenerated, and made children of God. Because they are sons, God sends forth the spirit of his son into their heart. Precisely here, and this brings before us, first of all, the union there is between Christ and his brother. It is because he died that they died. Yea, more. It was in him that they died. And that death is not a figment of the imagination. 
It is not something that we uh, have to postulate in order to have a systematic um, scheme of doctrine. It is something that's underlined and underscored heavily by the scriptures everywhere. Everywhere. The union between Christ and his church. When Paul says, Rest on ye yourselves, therefore, to be gathered to sin. Just last, those to whom he writes, to make themselves believe something that has no objective reality. Rest on ye yourselves to be dead. Consider yourselves to be dead or to sin. What was that? That it might help them some way or other to live uh, the Christian life. Oh, well, that was in it. But of, of course there was more than that. He was asking them to wreck on themselves dead unto sin because they were dead unto sin. There is nothing of the make-believe type of statement in the scripture at all. When certain duties are inculcated and passed upon the church, Sufficient grounds for these two deeds And those grounds have objective reality. Consider yourselves to be dead. Now the only reason that can be given for that is this. That they were dead. Dead earth sin. And dead because of their union with Christ. They died with him. When he died, they died. Now, union with Christ is not to be referred solely and entirely to that which takes place when in the day of God's power, the soul closes in with Christ. There is a union with Christ by faith. There is that. But that union by faith has something which precedes it. When a man believes, Surely he must believe in something that has already taken place. It is true that faith ushers a man into an atmosphere 
in which she never was before. That is true. It is true that by faith a man sees what he never saw before. It is true that by faith he can do what he never could do before. Nevertheless, behind and beyond all that, faith believes what is true, what is already true. Faith lays hold of the truth. And what is the truth? That the soul is united to Christ. <laughs> there is union with Christ that precedes the experience of union and union with the Bible. And where are we to find that? In God, in God, and in God only. And it is here that faith, while it is an instrument for enabling the soul to do, to see, and to consider, as it never could do, see, or consider before, nevertheless, it takes no credit to itself. It lays hold of what was true, objectively true, and true in God. Union with Christ. There is this union then that has to be traced. According to the scripture, to the counsel of God, a counsel for which he asked counsel of men, the counsel by which he works all things according to his own will. Surely, it would be a most superficial view of this, the, the scripture's presentation of the church's union with Christ to consider that it takes place only when the soul is united to Christ. That would leave us in a void. It would leave many things unexplained and impossible of explanation. But the scriptures do not lead things like that. This union, then, we say, it is in virtue of this union that they died with him. And it is because of having died with him that they have died to sin. This, then, we say, is to be traced to the eternal counsel of him that is most high. If we put it like this, the Lord did not accomplish the redemption which he did accomplish 
in a boy. He did not accomplish it. Speaking with all reverence, hoping for the best. No. A work was given him to do, a specific work. But it is equally true that this work was given him to do for a specific number. There is nothing vague in the counsel of God. There is nothing outside of it. There cannot. He hath foreordained for his own glory whatsoever comes to pass. And surely, in the uh, case of the eternal salvation of a people whom he loved, surely there is nothing there, nothing so to speak, left to chance. Oh no, no. Hence, whatever he did, when he lived, when he died, and when he rose again, all this is done in union with that people which was given him before the foundation of the world. Only thus can faith itself be intelligible. The Athenian rule of the world. It must be logical. What? What one could be? Surely, if faith is hold of anything, it's of Christ. And of Christ, as he is presented in the scripture, a savior, a real savior, not a hypothetical savior, not one who will save on certain conditions, but one who will save infallibly, and who is not dependent on any assistance for, from the people. He is a savior who actually saves. He is not one who has made salvation possible and left it at that. Oh no, no. He worked out salvation. Full, free and actual salvation. And that because of this union which is to be traced to the counsel of God from all eternity. They died in it. And this is what the soul lays hold of. When through the Holy Spirit it is enabled to see something of the wonder of salvation in Christ. He lays hold of Christ as an actual Savior. Being dead with him. Now this is what happens in actual um, experience when the soul is justified. It dies with Christ. 
Hence the absolute necessity of the preaching of the cross. The preaching of the cross. The preaching of the death of Christ. It wasn't for nothing that Paul again and again emphasized this. And all the disciples as well. There is a sort of a, of, of a, <clears throat> a theology abroad that doesn't uh, wish to come to the cross at all, at least to spend as little time there as possible. What they say is we have nothing to do with a dead Christ apart from the irreverence of such terminology. There is at the base of it a basic misconception. A misconception. The Apostle Paul, for instance, and incidentally, and strange to say, it is from the epistles of Paul that this sort of theology is said to be derived. The theology that looks, or the Christology that looks to the crown rather than to the cross. Now, of course, there should be no antithesis there. There is no antithesis between the cross and the crown. But it is at the cross, if we are to understand at all, that we must understand the death of the church. That they died to sin died to sin when Christ died and when Christ died he bare our sins in his own body to the tree that's uh, but we ended on the note let us therefore go out without the car bear him in his reproach see him bear him Sins on the tree. In virtue of which the church is dead to sin. No dead to it first in its condemning power. Sin cannot condemn the believer. Now we are at opposite poles here from anything that may be called antinomian. That is sinning that gives me about. At opposite poles from it. Nevertheless, there should be no hesitation in stating, according to the scriptures, that sin has no condemning power over the believer because the believer is dead to it and herein constant the castle that separates the unbeliever from the believer they may be coming in and going out together doing the same things in their daily walk and conversation and at the same time, there is this difference, a difference which no man can measure. 
that the one is dead to sin and the other is alive. Dead to sin. Sin has no more condemning power over them. And yet sin hasn't, hasn't been transformed into anything other than sin. Sin is still that abominable thing which God hates. Sin is still that which defies, that which is contrary to the revealed will of the everlasting sovereign. Nevertheless, sin has no condemned power for the believer. Why? The believer is in Christ. This is the shelter. Christ. And he is rightly in it. And rightly sin has no dominion over him. Now, that is a point which we would like to, to emphasize, but which we cannot know. The fact that what is it, whatsoever is presented in the scripture is presented as a truth of God, not as a figment of human imagination. A truth of God. This is true. The believer is dead to sin first in its condemning power. He saved from it with an everlasting salvation. Hence, Paul, in a triumphant look, states that the believer cannot come unto condemnation because he has passed from death to life. He cannot. Who makes it impossible? God, of course. Only God can make a thing impossible. Impossibilities are to be encountered in God, as possibilities are to be encountered in Him also. That He be dead to sin, the fact is stated, and an exhortation is drawn from the fact. Namely, that he should live unto Christ. We have to leave it here today. Now, one question in conclusion. The believer is dead to sin Which means, among other things, that he has made hold of Christ himself. That God's given faith has been exercised by him towards Christ in his death. And death and their only is an understanding begotten of that which Paul says in another place. I have decided, I have determined not to know anything among you. But Jesus Christ and him 
Let us pray.